I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. To start off the show, I'm very lucky to be joined now by Jesse Puji, who's the co-founder and CEO of Ampush. Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Carl. I'm uh, excited to chat today. Yeah, me too. So I want to, just before we get started, point our listeners to your website so if they're someplace safe, they can take a look. Ampush, which is A-M-P-U-S-H, ampush.com. All right, Jesse, let's kick it off by giving us the elevator pitch for Ampush. Sure. So Ampush is a marketing solutions provider that powers customer acquisition for some of the world's uh, most disruptive brands and companies. Uh, and to be a little bit more specific, we work with companies who are acquiring, who are buying media across the large digital platforms, Facebook and Google, as well as a handful of others like Pinterest, uh, Twitter, Snapchat. And we essentially take on everything from running an ad impression all the way to actually converting a paying customer. Um, and we only get paid by our partners for driving an incremental incremental customers to their business. So we kind of own that entire marketing funnel uh, end-to-end and sort of are only paid on, a, on an incremental performance or lift basis. All right. Well, there's a lot of moving parts here, and 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 it's a world that I'm guessing most of our listeners don't understand very well. And so let's start with the, the part of it they probably do understand, which is the, the user-facing piece of it. And I'm sure most of our listeners have used Twitter or Facebook and have seen ads that show up, let's say, in the Twitter feed. Are you involved with that? Yeah, uh, we will place those ads. I have built a software platform internally that kind of looks at the best audiences. Do you want to do you want to target people who like a certain sports team or who fit in a certain demographic range? And we will run a you know creative to that person that speaks to them in a very specific or, or personalized fashion and then measure the ROI that comes from that advertising based on how many customers sign up that clicked on it, how much might maybe money they spend, um, and then sort of continue to go through that feedback cycle to optimize more and more to ultimately get the best bang for, the, for buck for our partners. All right. So I would have naively assumed that let's just stick with Twitter, for, for instance, although I think we can all understand that you do this for, for a variety of partners. But let's just stick with Twitter for a second. I think most of us would have assumed that Twitter does that. And, and for instance, a lot of listeners probably have experience with, with AdWords. This is one of the simplest forms of advertising. And as, at least as I understand it, Google really owns that in terms of deciding what ad to serve managing the creative, acquiring the customer, and serving it up. Why, why is there an intermediary here? Why do you play that role at Twitter as opposed to Twitter doing it itself? Yeah, sure. And, and we buy ads on AdWords as well. So, so maybe I can start and actually, uh, you know, we like to start with a, what we call partner or our clients first. And, you know, let's use an example, um, a, a client that was recently acquired uh, Dollar Shave Club. And they were a longtime partner of Ampush when they got acquired. You know, they they sort of started working with the the big wigs that uh, whoever acquired Unilever. them. But yeah. Unilever, yeah, yeah, I think. Unilever. So they, you know, they would want to acquire men to have raising razor subscriptions, and they want to get as many customers as they can who are profitable for them. And it starts with having someone sign up, put their credit card in, 
and then measuring, you know, the propensity for that person to continue to stay on supervision, essentially not churn, not leave the service. And they will assign a, a value, like you know, what they what we call lifetime value to a given user, uh, given a given customer, someone getting razor subscriptions. And that might be, I'm just making up numbers here, but ten dollars a month, and the person on average stays for eighteen months, so that's a hundred and eighty dollar lifetime value. And you know, you may subtract out the razor costs and shipping costs and a bunch of other things, and you may come out to okay, well, this is how much profit they generate per customer in their lifetime. Say it's 100 or 120 dollars. Some portion of that you want to spend on marketing. You want to actually spend on marketing, and you you want to deploy it across the biggest channels that are out there. And the biggest channels that are out there are Google Search, AdWords, Facebook, especially on the mobile front, and some of the other platforms we've talked about, Twitter, Pinterest. And so their CMO wakes up in the morning and goes, "Hey, I want to go buy ads across all of those platforms. Um, I might not have the expertise in house. I might not have the technology that's going to let me do it at the granularity required for scale." I might, you know, I'm not, I'm not able to connect the actual ad that I show on Twitter to my own landing experience that a person experiences, and that makes it much harder to, to deploy those dollars effectively. So if you think of it from a, as opposed to thinking of it from the Twitter perspective, yeah. I think of it from the CMO's perspective, they really want, they need a marketing solution that's going to kind of solve that problem for them, and that's sort of, you know, enter and push, bang on our chest and say, we are the solution that can power that for you, and and solve the technology problem, the, the expertise and services problem, um, and and any other problem, you know, the capital allocation problem that comes up. Yeah, that's that helps a lot because so so in other words, the the platforms that you're delivering ads on, they're not exclusive to you. They would, in some cases, the the client or as you call it, partner could deal directly with them. Or they might work with other providers like Gampush. So so absolutely. Yeah. I see. That's that that makes it much more. And our bread is buttered by the CMO, not by the platforms. Yeah. In other words, we have part. That's the person we have to add value to and prove that we're you know the value is worth something to them. Otherwise, as you said, they could just go directly themselves, or there's you know other ways they can approach the problem. Yeah, but but maybe more significantly, and we'll probably might as well get into it now, I suppose. But you, it's hard for a startup to go in and take over some piece of Twitter's business or Google's business. Uh, they have no interest in having you do that. But if you're bringing them customers, then they welcome you. Sure. Is yeah, that, and is and that, if you yeah, looked at it, yeah. we're probably one of the top 10, you know, if, if Facebook were to think of us as a client in terms of dollar spend, we're one of the, probably their top 10, you know, in the world in terms of yeah. probably have, you know, th- roughly 300 million in ad spend that's sort of represented by us. And, and, and to be fair, they, you know, I think Facebook in particular has been a fantastic partner, and they really – the other thing they look at is – they look at us as a solutions provider for enterprise, fast-growth companies that they build their solutions to go direct. They'll build them – you know, I would say for a million advertisers to spend $1,000, you know, yeah. and our solution is built for 1,000 advertisers to spend a million dollars. And yeah. so they also they, – they've been very ecosystem-oriented as a partner and said, you know what, we're going to open up our technology stack to you. We're going to let you guys build on top of it similar to how our own teams could build on top of it. And, and we're excited to kind of let you go solve business problems um, and, sc- and, you know, scales their business, of course, because they still make the vast majority of the economics, but also enables other entrepreneurs to build businesses. Yeah. Well, you know, I own an, a couple of small businesses and we spend a, f- a fair bit, at least for us on, on these platforms. I understand the first part of the pitch to me, which is, look, 
you guys are good at this. It just saves me some time and headache to let you guys own the problem. But but how do you, what is the total benefit proposition? And I guess what I'm getting at is, is there any cross-platform information that you can use to do it better than I could do on my own? As Do you have some new, some other information available to you, which I wouldn't have available to me on my own? Sure, sure. So uh, it's a great question. And I think there's, there's a handful of levers that we think about. Um, so the first one is certainly running across multiple platforms and able to connect the dots across multiple platforms. Um, and so what do we, you know, we ran a search ad on Google. What does that mean for someone we saw on Facebook? Have we seen the same person twice? And uh, ability to even allocate dollars across the platforms is very valuable. Then there's a vertical component of it, which is, you know, we actually, oftentimes we will own a subdomain, um, think of it as, as buy.dollarshaveclub.com, is actually an ampush run domain. And we control the experience there and able to connect the dots between the ad that's shown and the person um, seeing that ad and, and essentially change the experience so it's a better experience or a more nuanced experience. Um, and convert, basically get more people to sign up for the, you know, for what's going on. And then the third lever is there's an offer. So we actually will work with our partners and determine, well, if I see someone from a Beverly Hills zip code um, and I've seen them three times before, I'm actually going to offer them the premium package. And that will actually improve the lifetime value economics of our partners. And, and so it's really, can you buy the ad better? Can you convert the traffic better? And then ultimately, can you, you know, get put the right person in the right package and then globally, I think the last thing I'll mention kind of related to this point is we have 300 million in ad spend flowing through our platform. So almost like a trader on Wall Street, every day our, our analysts get reports saying Facebook is cheaper this Monday than it is on average Mondays. You should probably spend more money today. And we can use global insights to essentially optimize in a way you wouldn't be able to. So mm-hmm. it's a combination of connecting all the dots that you, that you could probably connect on your own, but but we sort of have a, a software solution that lets us you know allow that service. And then having data that you probably either you wouldn't have access to um, that we're able to leverage. So let me just drill down one of those points and ask you what for some people is probably a delicate uh, question, mostly for the older audience. I think it's delicate. I think the younger doesn't care. But um, it, which is, what do you know about me? So I know, you know, Facebook knows exactly who I am. But do you know an ID on Facebook? Do you know that's also the same user on Twitter? No. Okay. So, so we, we do not know personally identifiable information unless you click on the ad and you go to the website. Then we can yeah. put a cookie on you, and, and, and that, that can let us connect the dots. I see. So if we go to the one, as you said, the domain, the landing page that you control, Buy Dollar Shave Club, we, you, you, once you do that, you know who I am, or at least you assigned an ID to me. Correct. Uh, yeah, got it. Uh, and that is something potentially that I can't do on my own because you know a user across different platforms. Sure, I mean you theoretically could on your own side as long as you're willing to do that and then feed that information back. I think it, it's it's cumbersome and and you may or may not have the technology, you know, the right people to do it, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Okay. How how do you get paid? So typically we, you know, I think this is one of the things, in addition to owning that entire sort of funnel from impression all the way to close sale, which is a pretty unique part of our business and something that we've actually developed in the last two years and as part of the partnership uh, with Red Ventures and we got an investment last year. The other aspect that's really unique is we try to align the way we get paid um, with the way that our partner gets paid. 
So the you know the old model was let's charge you a fee or let's charge you a percent of the spend, kind of like an asset manager. And we still have a few partners where we work in that way. But really, the way we're trying to move toward is we drive you an incremental customer, um, you know, and that's worth something to you. We want to we want a portion of that upside that we're generating for you. And and sometimes it can manifest as simple as. Uh, you know, if you're Uber, for example, you want more drivers, they just pay us a bounty for every driver we we get. So every, every time you get me a driver, that's worth $500 to me and making up numbers, and I'll pay you, you know, $500 every driver you get me. So a lot of times if that's what it looks like is almost this bounty model, but it's 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 supposed to be kind of up and above whatever they're getting on their own. And that sort of keeps us very honest about being performant. And and that's and I suppose that that's a that's an instance where the value there isn't a, a specific transaction that you can monetize there. It's more they're looking at their lifetime value of of having a driver and setting that bounty. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Jesse, uh, tell us a little bit about the origin story. Where did this idea come from? Yeah. So the the, the story is kind of a fun one. Um, you know, my, I'm born and raised in St. Louis. My dad, my dad came over from India when he was 17 and went to college in Missouri for some reason, which I don't know. But <laughs> he he was he's been an entrepreneur since I was born. He was a small business entrepreneur. He had a real estate business, a travel business, um, and and so I kind of grew up in the you know like that that kid who was snow shoveling for snow shoveling business for money, hiring other kids to do it, and um, yeah, anything that I could do to kind of be, be commercial. I got really into technology and, and, and kind of finance and investing during the first tech bubble in the late 90s. And everyone said, hey, if business is what you want to do, you got to go to Wharton, you got to go to Penn, and, and applied and got in. And I met Nick and Chris, who are my co-founders, uh, at, at actually a pre-college Wharton program, and then we all decided to be freshman college roommates. So the Amber wow. story actually goes back all the way till we were 17 years old. Um, and, and all, both of us, or sorry, all three of us shared these two things of, yeah, we really like finance and investing in markets, but we also want to be entrepreneurs and kind of went through pen torn between those two things. We all kind of went down the traditional path initially. I did consulting at McKinsey and the, those guys worked in investment banking, but when the financial crisis hit and we had started a couple of companies in college, we started a t-shirt business in college and had done a couple other things. Financial crisis hit in 2009 Nick, my co-founder, his hedge fund he was supposed to join blew up, and he kind of said, "You know, I'm going to take this as a sign, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just hang out. I'm going to try to learn and think about different things." And we started doing weekly calls. Those turned into daily calls. And next thing you know, we said, "Okay, we're ready to do something." And and we, you know, very much to our parents' chagrin, and at age 25, moved out to California and said, "We're going to start a business." And they said, "Well, what are you going to do a business?" And we said, "We don't know yet. Well, we'll get back to you on that question." Ha. Um, and the name Ampush is actually, uh, you know, the first two letters of the founder's last name. So Chris Amos, Jesse Puji, and Nick Shaw. Um, ah. And that's kind of how the name came about. But but we started to, you know, talk with a lot of friends and mentors, and everyone said, hey, you know, digital marketing is this really quantitative um, space and very analytical, and you're working with, you know, enterprises. And so given your guys' backgrounds of working on Wall Street and kind of in, in these consulting businesses – there might be something for you guys to figure out there. And, and we kind of started learning about it, learning how quantitative and analytical it was, felt like there was a big opportunity to just be more rigorous and more data-driven and quantitative. And, and that kind of started to work for us in the early days. But the real break for us came probably about a year in when Facebook launched their their version of AdWords. And we kind of said, hey, let's give this a shot. 
and we started spending on Facebook and realized you could get very granular with your targeting. You could be very specific with how you message people, and you could measure things very granularly and kind of build this full feedback loop. And we went from spending in 2010, you know, 10 or 20 grand a month on Facebook to something like 500 grand a month in less than six months, all kind of making money and being profitable from doing that. And Facebook called us in, in early 2011 and said, who the hell are you guys? You're one of our yeah. fastest growing advertisers. You're one of our top 100 global advertisers. Come meet us. And so we went and met with them. And probably a couple months later, they made us one of the first partners to have access to their APIs, their tech stack, to basically build our own software solution on top of it. So we kind of just threw it, you know, I, I, sometimes I call it sandbox entrepreneurship, which is pick a sandbox, play around in it, and, and you're going to learn by doing. And, and we picked the sandbox of digital marketing and, and said, we're going to figure something out by kind of getting ourselves involved. And, and that's sort of worked out, I think, better than most people expected at that time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want to underscore two points here. The, the first is the way you're calling the sandbox. And, and I would say, yes, that's a good description with one additional characterization, which is the world was in disequilibrium, right? So there was this yeah. new thing happening. If if you had decided your sandbox was going to be, you know, cement delivery or something, I, I, I think it would have had a different outcome. So I sure. think I think it's a it's a great insight. But just for our listeners, I want to add that looking for these moments where there's disequilibrium out there in the world, there's some shock to the world, to the system. A new entrant like you guys can actually become the leader, can become the the expert in that space. So that's and an important a space where where you believe that's going to happen. You know, in the newspaper space, you're probably not going to get a lot of uh, innovation at this time. Whereas in this space. Even though we have, weren't thinking of Facebook when we started our business, we knew that digital marketing had a had a propensity to have innovation happening in it, and that's you know that's exactly your point. You need that in order to to kind of be early to something. And we, at the end of the day, were very early to the Facebook marketing place, and that's what helped us build the business. Yeah, say a little bit about. And then the other thing I wanted to underscore was this notion of the team. So this team goes way, 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 way back to when you were 17 years old, and how I, I can imagine that I actually know a startup and for obvious reasons, I'm not going to say who it is because it, this isn't a necessarily a positive thing. It's, it's two childhood friends who founded it. And, and one of them, one of them is out of his league. He's not really capable for the job he's in. And, but there's so much loyalty there that they can't split up. And, and so I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about the importance of that team formation and if there is, if there's a difference between being very close and being business partners. Yeah, sure. It, it's a great question. Um, you know, it, it's always funny. I always differentiate these guys between childhood friends and, 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 and Nick and Chris. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> because childhood friends, you don't, you know, they're, they're your neighbors and they're people that live Whereas, we, you know, we, I always tell people we work together. We've almost been work friends since we started because, as you know, at Wharton and Penn, that, that's a pretty intense environment. And I tell everyone we had a lot of opportunity to, to vet each other uh, in work and study groups and yeah. studying for big exams where the curve is 45 or writing 20-page papers. And, you know, you're, it's 4 a.m. and you realize you did something wrong and are you going to stay up all night and get it done or not? And I think the three of us had many of those battle-tested experiences prior to even thinking about starting a business together that actually, while it sounds like, hey, you've been friends since you're 17 and you're, you're sort of 
you know, it's actually, much, I think the relationship, frankly, had been much more professional in many ways. Um, and, and that helped us a lot because I think we're able to be very clear when we're working, it's, it's pretty serious. And, and when we're not working, it's not serious and it's fun. And, um, but we've done a pretty good job of, I think, separate, separating them, but also we acknowledge them very openly, you know, even contractual arrangements between the three of us. Like it's, it's just, we've, we've found that balance between not, that's not an uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. Uh, it's something all of us want to do in the open and, and be very clear about it. So it's a, it's a unique partnership. That's for sure. Um, but I would argue that you got it. I always tell people you have to have worked, you know, we have to have worked in an intense ex- experience with someone because starting it, there's nothing more intense and more, more, more emotional than starting a business. And so yeah. whoever you're doing that with, you got to be, you got to really have known that they can, they can handle that heat um, before you start it with them. Yeah. You know, I, I think, I think school might also have some other unique attributes, including there, you know, you, you, people are on their best behavior at work. And in school, it's really you are who you are. Your your, your real yeah. preferences are, are revealed, and you're making personal trade-offs all the time. It's almost like you were mountain climbing together, or something where it's it it really does reveal who you are. I think, and so that might yeah. actually be an advantage as at, over over even an early work experience. Yeah, and I think playing to each other's strengths is important, and, and respecting. You know, so some of us like being managers and leaders more than others of the three of us and, and have different strengths around that and trying to be willing to be open and honest and put people in that, those different positions. I think, um, like I always tell people, the conversation for me becoming the CEO was like a five-minute conversation. And because you were obviously the take-charge kind of guy. And, well, we literally took a wreck of what does a CEO do? <laughs> literally, yeah. this is how dispassionate it is. Like, the guy who talks and, and yeah, he's, a, he's the go-getter and he's willing to get in someone's face and hold them accountable and, you know, whatever it was. And then he said, well, which, and then look, everyone said, you know, those guys looked at me and said, dude, this describes you more than us and, and you should do this. That's what's going to be best for the business and best yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah. All right. I wanted to shift gears just a little bit. We just have a couple minutes, but um, about financing. So I, I, you know, I never know whether the data I see on Crunchbase is is exactly right, but you alluded to it. You went a long time, it looks like, without raising a lot of money, and then you raised fifteen million dollars a year ago. Talk a little bit about about uh, financing and whether and and how you made this decision to goose the business. Yeah. Sure. Um... It's a really interesting topic, and, and, you know, I think I'll give you my high-level thoughts, and then I can talk specifically about us. I think, to me, there really are two tracks. Um, you know, one is the I want to build a sustainable, profitable business, and I want to do this for a long time. And, and I think one of the hardest things for an entrepreneur early on is just being honest with yourself about what you want. And if what you want is to do that, then I think you sell something for more than it costs you all in, and you turn a profit, and you build a business. and there's some really cool companies like Atlassian and Qualtrics and, and a bunch of really cool companies that really bootstrapped and, and, and did that and still have built really meaningful big businesses, but took a longer time to get there and, and did it in a way that they've enjoyed more. And I think there's another path where you, um, where you go down the venture path and the venture path is you're taking professional dollars. Those require a return on them. And, and as a result, you kind of have to get on this track where you raise a C round, then you raise an A, then you raise a B and you have to grow at a certain pace that, that kind of validates those valuations. And I think we really, we preferred the first path, I think, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, we at some point got really intoxicated by growth and started doing, I think what was the worst thing I tell everyone is you either grow really fast or you, and you take money to do it, or you 
you bootstrap and you grow slower and grow profitably. And, and we kind of got to this place where we're like, well, let's run the business at break even. And we were growing over 100% a year for three or four years straight. And it, what it does is it takes a lot out on the people and the founders. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of tell everyone, yeah, that, don't do that. Just pick one or the other and, and stick with it. Um, but we wanted to go. We didn't want to have a clock on our head. We didn't want to take money from folks, partly because in our sandbox mode, we didn't really know what we were doing. And we had been in the worlds of Morgan Stanley and these kind of fancy companies. And the last thing we wanted to do was, was take someone's money and not have a clear vision for what we were trying to build. So I think it started that way. We were able to generate a profit much quicker than I think we expected. And then we kind of said, well, let's just let's kind of fund the business in this fashion and, and grow it out that way. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else pertinent there. And then, and then you know, in, in 2015, we, we actually, the money that we took was far more strategic. The company is called Red Ventures. They sound like a VC. They're actually a large marketing and sales organization based in Charlotte. Uh, a Wharton, one of the Wharton MBAs is a founder or a, huh. one of the founders of the Wharton MBA named Dan Feldstein. Um, is there, they, they kind of do the same end-to-end model we do. They're actually really the creators of it, and they take up the transaction all the way to offline. So they actually have a sales center where they have 2,000 people who are actually you know, selling DirecTV or selling Verizon uh, after finding them digitally and bringing them offline. So they kind of they were a really interesting fit. They saw our social mobile capabilities as critical to them. We saw kind of what we call the full funnel capabilities as really critical to our vision. And that was kind of where the marriage occurred. And, and it, you know, we wanted to keep running our business and growing it. And so we, it's structured as an investment versus something else. But our view was a much more, let's get strategic about this. Let's, you know, it wasn't a need for money. It wasn't uh, a desire to bring on a, an invest, a financial investor. It was like a little bit of de-risking personally, which I think is important for entrepreneurs, de-risking for the business, which I think is important, and then strategic value add. All right. Well, Jesse, remarkably, we're out of time, but it's so interesting. And thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. For more information about Ampush, you can follow them on Twitter at Ampush, A-M-P-U-S-H. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes.